Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Matthew 12, verse 22. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Um, I remember... Uh, several years ago, uh, reading snide comments from an American history professor who was aghast that most people did not know that a house divided against itself is that brilliant line that Abraham Lincoln created. So, um, well, we'll keep reading. Verse 26. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then it is they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. That might make you think of another American president. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not, not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings out evil things, evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. This is one of the most vexing passages in all of Scripture, and the reason that it vexes so is because of its description of the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. We find this puzzling. It strikes us as odd because the Bible exalts in the forgiveness of God. God's forgiveness is rich and free and broad, and the Bible speaks about it a lot. So what is Jesus about when he talks about the unforgivable sin? Uh, look at verse 31, uh, as we think about the forgiveness of, of sin. Jesus said, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. That's the language we're used to. Look at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is the most important description of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we looked at it a little bit ago. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 
And this is what the text says. The Lord, well, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What is central to who God is? He is a forgiving God. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Or Psalm 130, verse 7. Look what Psalm 137 says. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full. That's an important adjective there. Full redemption. Full, complete forgiveness. Or John 6, 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never, I will never drive away. No matter who you are, if you come, no matter what baggage you have, you come to me and I will not drive you away. Since that's true, how can Jesus be talking about a sin that God will not forgive? I want to know what it is. I want to know what it is so I can avoid committing it. Some of you um, read this passage and it troubles you because it seems to confirm what you have feared for a long time. That someday you're going to stand before the judgment seat on judgment day that Jesus makes reference to here. That you're going to stand before God and he's going to find in you some reason why you can't come into the kingdom. He's going to find some flaw, some error, something that you did wrong. He's going to he had, well comb through your life and he's going to find that one thing that makes you ineligible to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this passage seems when, when Jesus talks about sin that cannot be forgiven, it just seems to confirm that fear that you have. God's forgiveness, sure, it may be rich and free and broad, but it's not as rich and free as some pastors make it sound. I've, sp <coughs> I've spoken to people who think that they have committed the unforgivable sin a couple times in my life. With great fear, they talk about it and worry. Sometimes that fear is rooted in some poor interpretations of what the unforgivable sin is. Uh, some preachers and teachers have said the unforgivable sin is divorce or adultery or some sort of moral failing like that. I struggle to see how they imported those ideas into this text. Maybe when we come to this passage, I, I want to suggest to you that perhaps when you come to this passage, you might come from the wrong direction. Asking the wrong sort of questions. Asking the questions that Matthew didn't intend for you to ask and, and didn't write for you to ask. Here's what I mean. So when, when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew wrote his gospel, he wrote it with uh, knowing that there would be a diverse readership. A lot of different types of people would read his book. But his primary audience are those who already believed the gospel. Those who have already heard about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and are followers of Jesus. And Matthew wrote this gospel in part in order to do, to fulfill the command that Jesus gave the disciples at the end of Matthew. Look at Matthew 28, 18. The text says, this passage we know well, Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There's the command, make disciples of all nations. Now, how are they supposed to do it? Two ways, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end. 
What are disciples supposed to do? Disciples are supposed to make disciples. And how do you make disciples? Baptizing them. Share the gospel with people so that they believe in the Lord Jesus and then baptize them. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I think the gospel of Matthew consists of Matthew's record of Jesus' commands because Matthew, by his book, is trying to make disciples. Matthew wants you to be a made, a fully formed disciple, so he wrote down these recollections about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. He's trying to make disciples. He's writing to people who are already on the inside. So when he talks about the unforgivable sin, you should read it not as an outsider who is guilty of it or who might commit it, but as an insider who is watching people dance with this very dangerous sin. Read it as an insider, not as an outsider. When you see people commit this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and I doubt it will occur often in your life, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to think? How are you supposed to respond? Matthew wrote this in part as part of his work in preparing his people, uh, Jesus' people, for the inevitable opposition that comes as followers of Jesus. Inevitably in this world, if you're a follower of Jesus, there will be conflict, there will be opposition. Because you love someone supremely, who is outside of and over this world. You have different values, you have different aspirations, you have different goals and dreams and standards, and inevitably there will be conflict. And Matthew wrote this to help us. Outsiders might need this warning that he gives, but that's not his chief purpose. In fact, I think what he's after here is he's trying to prepare us for the opposition that we should expect. And for what I, what I want to do, for the, our time today, is I want to share with you five characteristics of the opposition that followers of Jesus should expect in this world. And we're going to go through the passage, and I'm going to show you these five characteristics so that you're ready, so that you can obey what the Lord Jesus has commanded us. Here's number one, first characteristic. The opposition is entrenched. It's entrenched. By that, I mean it's persistent, it's deep, it's not casual, it's not thoughtless, it's not off the cuff. It's deep and it's real and it's long, this opposition. The reason I think that is because of uh, similarities between what Jesus, uh, what Jesus experienced here in Matthew 12 compared to what happened back in Matthew chapter 9. Flip a couple pages with me, if you would, please, back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 32. And I want to read this paragraph, and I want you to think about the similarities between this paragraph in Matthew 9 and what I just read in Matthew chapter 12, okay? So, Matthew 9, verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Do you notice the similarities between Matthew 9 and Matthew 12? So in both instances, a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. In chapter 9, he cannot speak. In chapter 12, he cannot speak or see. In both instances, Jesus heals the man immediately, and the evidence is immediate that he has been healed because he speaks in 9 and he speaks in sees in 12. In both instances, the crowds are amazed and respond and speculate about who Jesus is. And in both instances, the Pharisees say, no, he is, demon, he, he is in league with the devil. He does this by the prince of 
demons. Notice the similarities there. The objection that we see in chapter 12 has been around for a long time. That may be why in verse 25, Jesus said Jesus knew their thoughts. Is it a miracle that Jesus knew their thoughts? It could be, it's possible. Or maybe he just knows this is a line that the Pharisees have been selling for a long time. They've been telling people this about him, that he is in league with the devil. And then Matthew records this long response. Matthew, by the amount of real estate that he gives to Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, is telling us how to read this passage. Some people, when they read stories of exorcism uh, in the Bible, read them in the Gospels for clues about how to do exorcism or how to heal, as if the Gospels were written to give us instructions about those things. That cannot possibly be true. He mentions the healing almost as a, well, it's just the, just the beginning, just the, the entrance. It's, it, it, these are not instructions about how to exercise demons. They're, uh, it's an assurance that Jesus can, and here's how people respond to him. Remember, opposition persists. It's deep. It's entrenched. It should surprise us. It shouldn't unsettle us as followers of Jesus. It shouldn't silence us when there are people around us who are no fans of the Lord Jesus. This is the sort of world that we live in. Be, be ready, be prepared, be expectant of it. Uh, this week, uh, today, as a matter of fact, is two of the three final games of the NFL season for this year. Uh, and, and over the last two weeks, over the last three weeks, I'm sure... Uh, coaches and assistant coaches have been preparing for this day by watching a lot of tape, a lot of films of games. They're watching their opponents play. They're watching how the people line up, the, the men line up on the, the, the goal line, they're, uh, on the line of scrimmage. They're, they're watching how, where they are and what they're doing because they're, they're, they're trying to evaluate the plays so that they can, can we estimate, can we, can we predict what the team is going to do by how they're lined up? Even something as simple, if a, if a certain linebacker has his foot just a little bit further back in one play, it might indicate something that they're going to do. So they pour over these uh, uh, clips of these games and watch them and measure them and evaluate statistics. They're trying to prepare their own teams for the game. They want their teams to go on the field, and when they see the, their opponents do something, they want their teams to say, ah, I know what this is. I've seen this. We're ready for this. This is not a surprise. And Matthew here is telling us about the sort of opposition that Jesus responds so that you and I say, oh, we know this. We're not surprised by this. We've been expecting this. Do you remember, some of you maybe do, that last February we were going to have Dr. Farnham, Mark Farnham from uh, Lancaster Bible College, come and talk to us about more effectively representing the Lord Jesus with the way that we speak. He's an expert in apologetics, that, uh, that aspect of evangelism that meets with opposition. And I was looking forward to him coming. We, he did not come, and we're going to reschedule it for 2029. I don't know, sometime when it's possible for him to come back. Because I want you, I want me, when, when I am in a, a situation where I'm representing the Lord Jesus, I want to be prepared so that I say, I knew this was coming. This is not a surprise. I'm ready for this. Opposition is entrenched. 
Number two, we're going to spend more time on this. Opposition is spiritual. It is spiritual. There is a lot of talk in this passage about Satan. A lot of talk. It starts with the Pharisees. So the crowd, when they see Jesus do this miracle, they're astonished and they say, could this be the son of David? That uh, The text doesn't indicate that the English doesn't, but the Greek does that they're, it's a negative question. They're expecting the answer to be no. This can't be the son of David, could it? Now, you're supposed to know because you're an intelligent reader. You're supposed to remember Matthew 1.1. Remember what Matthew 1.1 says? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You've read that. So when you hear the crowd saying, this can't be the son of David, can it? You say in your head, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And the Pharisees say, no, no, no. It is only by Satan, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Eleven years ago, there was a terrible earthquake that struck the island nation of Haiti. Well, half, of the, half of the island is Haiti. Terrible earthquake. And uh, Pat Robertson, the televangelist, went on his show and evaluated the situation. Pat Robertson is not a reliable guide when it comes to interpreting the news in light of Scripture. He is almost always wrong. Pat Robertson is a Christian, so I think if he and I were to make a list of the things we agree about and the things we disagree about, the list of things we agree about would be longer, but this is an instance in which when he interprets the news, he's wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, his interpretation of the earthquake in Haiti was that uh, the earthquake came as punishment because the Haitians 300 years ago had made a pact with the devil to protect their nation. That's why he said the earthquake came. It's a statement you make without biblical authority or without biblical warrant. But uh, his, his uh, announcement, his interpretation made news headlines and it appeared on late night comedy shows. And the basic tenor of the response of newscasters and comedians is how stupid Pat Robertson could be to believe in an evil personal force, uh, evil person like the devil and, and to believe that he could have some sort of impact in the world. That's laughable. It's foolish, they said. It's, uh, we're too sophisticated to believe this, right? A recent study I saw found that 57% of Americans believe in the existence of the devil. So you wonder who the laughable people are. Jesus seems to have no problem talking about Satan. He talks about, he refers to him as a strong man. He talks about his kingdom in this passage. He talks about the demons over which he rules. I wonder what Jesus knows about reality that you don't know. Now, as Matthew describes it, something clearly has happened. Clearly something has happened. This man now speaks and he couldn't speak before. He now sees and he couldn't see before. And the Pharisees attribute it to Jesus' partnership with Satan. And Jesus responds at first by assaulting their logic, actually their illogic. Verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. Now, Jesus knows, we have to think carefully here. Jesus knows about false miracles. He knows that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He knows that it's possible that Satan would allow something apparently good or even empower something apparently good to happen so that he could uh, accomplish his more nefarious purposes. That Satan 
it's possible for Satan to, as it were, take one step back so he can take three steps forward. Jesus knows that. But he says to the Pharisees, he says, my opposition to evil spirits has been so persistent, so consistent, so strong, and for so long that if I'm really in league with the devil, then Satan is allowing his own kingdom to be shredded. And that's illogical. It's crazy, your interpretation. He goes on in verse 27 and he talks about the disciples of the Pharisees. He calls them your people, or your translation might say your sons. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? If driving out demons is a sign that you are in a league with the devil, then what about your own people? He says to the Pharisees. Oops. And then in verse 28, Jesus applies his own logic. It's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons. And if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then in verse 29, he talks about the spiritual realities that they're encountering. Again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now in this image that Jesus is using in verse 29, Jesus, Satan, is the strong man. And in his house he has many possessions. People, human beings, in Satan's house. And Jesus is the thief who comes in, ties up the strong man, and plunders the house. Let's just think about the imagery that Jesus is using here. He's saying the whole world and everybody in it, whether they realize it or not, are prisoners of war held in Satan's house. They're hostages. Martin Luther says this image should help you think about what you believe about free will. How free is the will of a prisoner of war? How free is the will of a hostage? The whole world, whether they realize it or not, prisoners of war in the house of Satan, and Jesus has come to rescue you. The opposition that we encounter is not just intellectual. It's not just an argument about who has the best arguments. It's not just social. It's not a competition to see who has the most influence in society. It's not just moral, a discussion about which values truly lead to human flourishing. The opposition is not just legal about who has what rights to practice their faith. There is spiritual opposition in the kingdom of God from the kingdom ruled over by this prince of demons that Jesus identified. Notice how the Apostle Paul says it this way when he talks about, he, he builds on this same imagery of Satan and the strong men in his house and him being his kingdom being plundered. Look at, at Colossians 1.13. Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Jesus has invaded the kingdom of Satan and brought us out into his own kingdom. And then in Colossians 2, 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. How did he do that? He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's odd Jesus uses this language. Paul uses this language to describe what Jesus did. Jesus invaded Satan's kingdom, and he brought his people out. And he did it by the cross. How? 
Colossians 2.14 says that the main tool that the enemy Satan has against us is our own sin. He's the great accuser. He accuses you and he accuses you before God. And Jesus has disarmed Satan by dying for our sins on the cross. The text, Colossians 2 says, he nailed it to the cross. Some of you know this. In the ancient world, when someone was crucified, they would be crucified, hung on the cross, and above them would be a placard, and on the placard would be written their crime. What did they do? Murder, insurrection, uh, uh, violence of, of some kind would be written on that placard. The text, Paul uses this imagery that Jesus took our sins and he nailed them to the cross and then he himself died for them. You could pass a cross, a crucified victim in the ancient world, and you could say, there's his crime and there's the one who's dying for it. And when Jesus died for us on Calvary, there was the crime. It was my crime. And Jesus is the one who died for that crime. He nailed to the cross by taking away our sin and thus he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle over them on the cross. He died and he rose again. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus because Jesus has invaded Satan's realm and rescued you. He brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Look at Isaiah 49, 24. I think Jesus is building on this imagery a little bit. Isaiah 49, verse 24. Um, look at this verse for a second. Can plunder be taken from warriors? The implied answer is no. Can you, can you go into a strong man's house and rob him? Can plunder be taken from warriors? Are captives be rescued from the fierce? Is that possible? No. Verse, uh, verse 25 says... But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retreat from the fierce. Who's going to do it? I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Can you go into a strong man's house and take his possessions? No, you can't. But I will. God says, I will. I will rescue you. I will contend with those who contend with you. And the Lord Jesus has come to do just that. He says in Isaiah 49, 25, I will contend with those who contend with you and I will, and your children, I will save. Now we need to read Isaiah 49 carefully in context of the promises that God has making to the nation of Israel there. But here is this promise. I think you should pray for your children. God, contend for my sons and my daughters. When you, when you proclaim the good news, when we do this as a church from the pulpit or when you across a t around a table with children, when, you are when you're telling them about what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again or across the, a table at a coffee shop with a friend of yours, when you're sharing the good news of Jesus with someone, you are announcing the victory that the Lord Jesus wrought 2,000 years ago and that for 2,000 years the Holy Spirit has been applying to the minds and hearts of people and rescuing them, rescuing them from Satan's house. The opposition that we experience is spiritual. Third, it's involuntary. It's involuntary. This is a conflict that you are engaged in that 
um, you didn't choose, but you can't be neutral about. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You cannot be neutral or indifferent with Jesus. Ken Edwards says that Jesus is the great uh, polarizer. It's as if all of humanity are spread out on a piece of paper as iron filings and Jesus comes, the great magnet, and all of those iron filings orient themselves to the magnet. Some face north, some face south. Everyone responds. And Jesus says, you cannot be neutral about me. And if you try, if you try, you are hurting and not helping. Notice you can see this. Jesus says, Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus, he says, you know what Jesus does? Jesus gathers. Jesus has come to, he has invaded Satan's house to rescue his people, and he gathers. That's what he does. Jesus gathers. Uh, at, at Millersville University, Dan and Lisa gather athletes, and they tell them about Jesus because Jesus gathers his people together. Jim and Helen Lehman gather international students into the kingdom of God by telling them about the good work that Jesus has done. Jesus gathers, we gather, we are a gathered people. We are the gathering this morning of the ones that Jesus has gathered. Someday, the Lord Jesus is going to return and he's going to gather all of his people of all time to be with him. He's going to gather us from our different nations. He's going to gather us from our different churches and denominations. He's going to gather us some from the grave and some from the streets. He's going to come and gather us and we will be with him forever. Jesus is the great gatherer. We join with him in this gathering and he says, if you're not involved in this work of gathering, you're a scatterer. You're scattering. This is an involuntary conflict. You're in this conflict, whether you signed up for it or not, and you're either helping or hurting. Number four, this opposition that we experience is consequential. It's consequential. Now we need to be clear about what Jesus is saying, because here we're going to talk about the unforgivable sin, in which he warns. Jesus is warning. Uh, some people said that the, have said that the unforgivable sin is um, unbelief, just bare unbelief. And, and there is some truth to that, that um, unbelievers will not be forgiven. That's true. But there's more going on here. I think the, that the unforgivable sin, John Walvoord summarized it pretty well, the unforgivable sin, attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. Attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. It's more than just an offhand comment. It's more than just a spoken word. It is a deeply settled conviction, a mindset of opposition. In the face of incontrovertible evidence, this is what I believe. That's what the Pharisees are doing. There's incontrovertible evidence. Clearly, this man has been healed. And the men, the Pharisees look at that and say, that is not God, it is not from God, it is Satan, it's from Satan, of Satan. Uh, attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. 
I think that incontrovertible evidence piece does explain the contrast that Jesus makes in verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So what's the difference between slandering the Holy Spirit and slandering Jesus? What's the difference? I think uh, we think about this two different ways. Um, the difference, there are people who are not followers of Jesus today, though they've heard the gospel. They're not followers of Jesus because there's things they don't know about him, things they don't understand about him, things they don't appreciate about him, and someday we hope the Holy Spirit will open their eyes so that they turn and believe. That, so there are people who are in that sense against the Son of Man. But Jesus here in this instance, the Pharisees have seen a clear work of the Holy Spirit and have said no. Matthew, the gospel writer, writes less about the Holy Spirit than, say, Luke does, uh, Luke in Luke, the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. But the Holy Spirit in the book of Matthew is at work in a couple of different ways, in particular ways, in the, in the conception of the Lord Jesus, in Jesus entering the world. And here, the Holy Spirit is at work in empowering Jesus to do this miracle that is a clear testimony clear evidence to his identity as the Messiah. And the Pharisees saw that and said, no, absolutely not. They will not believe. If you worry about committing the sin, the unforgivable sin here, if, if that is a concern that you have, that is a sure sign that you have not committed this sin. People who are guilty of this um, they don't care. They don't worry about it. In fact, they're glad that they have committed it. They're proud of it. Look, I am not a follower of Jesus. I'm not going to believe in him. He is not from God. He is Satan. They don't worry about committing that sin. It doesn't perplex them or bother them or trouble them in the least. They're happy about it. And Jesus is warning his audience about it in this context. I imagine there, there may be some people who are Pharisees who are on the edge, some men who are Pharisees who are kind of on the edge, and the main spokesmen are, are saying this, that this is he's from the Prince of Demons, he's with the Prince of Demons, and maybe there's some on the edge who just are wondering and aren't quite sure, and Jesus issues this warning, this is serious. Don't speak this way against the work of the Holy Spirit. God takes this seriously. God does not tolerate people who speak this way about the Son and about the Spirit. This is supposed to provide us with some comfort. Because the opposition that, ironically, because the opposition that we experience in this world will be at times painful, will be difficult at times. God takes that seriously. There are consequences for that opposition. Now, number five, finally, the uh, opposition that followers of Jesus should expect is rooted. It's rooted. Verses 33 through 37 are about your words and what your words say about your heart. Your words are an expression of your heart. Um, just the, the Pharisees here are saying foolish things because they're foolish all the way down. Uh, just like a, a fruit uh, the, the, uh, good fruit comes from good trees and bad fruit comes from bad trees. So good words come from good hearts and bad words come from bad hearts. Just like a discerning collector shows his wisdom by bringing out the treasures that he has, so sometimes a foolish collector 
brings out his folly with the junk he's collected. Jesus says, your words here are a measuring stick of your heart. You know about your nature by what you say. And you Pharisees, you're snakes, no wonder you hiss. Rotten words come from rotten hearts. This is more than just about their words. It's about their nature and their words reveal their nature. Verse 36 says, I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Empty words, it means um, thoughtless words. The things you say when you don't censor yourself. All of us have an internal censor, right? Sometimes your censor takes a day off. But you have an internal censor, right? And, and the, you don't say everything that you think. Thoughts come into your mind and, and, and the censor inside says, don't, don't say that. Empty words are words that slip by the censor. They're thoughtless words. Things you say without thinking about it. And they reveal your nature. Uh, and, and, and the Pharisees, by their words, are revealing their nature in opposition to God. Carolyn Ahrens uh, grew up in a small Baptist church, and she writes that one of her favorite uh, events on Sundays at her church was Missionary Sunday, when missionaries would come in, and there would be no sermon, and the missionaries would talk about their lives overseas and what it was like. And, and one of her most memorable visits from a missionary was about a young couple that came who were serving and living in a very remote jungle uh, part of the world. And uh, they were talking one day about uh, where they lived. Uh, they were talking on this particular Sunday about where they lived and all of the snakes that were in that area. And one day, while they were in their house, it was a, not a very primitive house, we would consider it, a snake came in, a humongous, gigantic, enormous snake, bigger than human beings, snake came into this house. And the missionary couple, they ran from the house, just screaming, snake, snake, snake. And their neighbor saw them and heard them. What's what's wrong? There's a snake. It's huge. It's in the house. And this uh, man, very experienced, took his machete, went into the house. They heard some rattling, banging around. And then uh, finally the man came out with a bloody machete and said, his head is no longer attached to his body. Oddly enough, though, they kept hearing banging around the house. And the man said, now there's something you must understand about this snake, the way his circulatory system works, and the way the nervous system snakes uh, of these snakes work. Sometimes their bodies don't know that their heads are missing. They don't, they're dead and they don't realize it for hours. So this missionary couple stood outside their house and listened for hours as the body of the snake flailed and thrashed in their house, smashing things around, breaking things. It's just what you want to hear from inside your house, right? A headless snake. Hours and hours it, it went along, waiting. They were waiting for the body to realize that it was dead. The missionary said, oh, while we were standing there, we realized, of course, what was going on. And this is the perfect metaphor, perfect explanation for what it means to follow Jesus in this world. You see the message, don't you? And Carolyn says, everybody in the church was like, no, tell us, what are we supposed to learn? He said, um, Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he does a lot of thrashing. He, he does a lot of damage. But you should never forget that he's a goner. Don't we live in a world where we see a lot of evidence of the thrashing around of our adversary, the devil? 
things get smashed. It's discouraging at some times. Sometimes you might be tempted to a great amount of despair over the damage that he can do. But he's already been defeated. The Bible is very clear. Jesus has already crushed his head. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great mercy to us through the Lord Jesus. We're thankful to you for, the, for Matthew and his disciple-making work in our lives by, by detailing these events and these words from the Lord Jesus. Father, we come before you today because we need your help in this world in which we experience opposition. We are often tempted to despair. We're tempted to cowardice. We're tempted to be surprised and shocked when people around us don't love Jesus like we do. So we're foolish in that regard. You've prepared us with this scene from the life of the Lord Jesus. So prepare us in reality, we pray, for the week that is ahead of us as we live in this broken world. Father, we recognize that it's not just Satan who who people consider to be laughable, but the glory of the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, too. Lord, I do pray for the men and women in this room in particular who read this passage with fear when Jesus talks about unforgiveness. I pray that you would remind them of the great work that the Lord Jesus has done and that their fear is a sign of their sensitivity to it. Deliver them from their worry. Send us forth, we pray, as courageous followers of Jesus. We pray, Father, as we do this gathering work that you have entrusted to our care, that you would come soon, Lord Jesus, and gather us to yourself, that we might be with you forever. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.